Welcome to HEAL. On today's episode, psychiatrist Dr. Guy Maytal and I discuss what a diagnosis actually is and what it isn't, the importance of language, studying our history, and being a humble physician. I'm your host, Dr. Sarah Marshall. Guy Maytal, thank you for being here. Pleasure. Pleasure, Sarah Marshall. This is, yeah, you have been someone in my wanting to have be a part of this project since its inception. So this is Mm. like super, super, super exciting. Mm. And I had some particular reasons why I've thought of you. And one is your experience working as a psychiatrist with cancer patients. Yep. And also you're one of those humans that I have don't think I've ever had a conversation with you over the eight plus years I've known you or six years I've known you that I'm not left with, oh my God, I didn't know that. And that just altered something about the way I see my life and the world. Thank you. And uh, yep. All of a sudden there's a high bar to reach in this conversation. Uh, You're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) And that may not happen at all. I know. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. 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 yeah, It's a great. Cool. Yeah. So I just want to start straight up with like, for you, personal experience, professional experience, life view, what does it mean to heal? I just have to actually officially say, because I do work for various organizations, uh, that I need to say that my views are my own and don't represent anything related to the organization of Wild Cornell and New York Presbyterian Hospital. So I just need to, that's kind of the disclaimer statement that I need to make. Because what I do professionally is I work as a psychiatrist at those organizations for Wild Cornell Medicine, which is a medical school in New York City and New York Presbyterian Hospital. It's affiliated hospital. And I work on integrated care and what's called psycho-oncology, which is the, broadly speaking, the, the care of the psychosocial aspects of what it is to go through cancer and to have a loved one deal with cancer. And I also think about how do we integrate mental health perspectives and treatments into other aspects of the general medical world. And I also think from a systems perspective and an ethics perspective, how did all those intervenes interface with each other? So I do some medical ethics as well. That's a little bit about me professionally. What does it mean to heal? Well, are you talking from the person who is a self-identified healer or the person who is looking for healing? As an organism that heals? Well, I don't know where well, we can look together. Mm-hmm. I haven't thought about it. Mm-hmm. I think, I think at the very first step, it requires a uh, certain degree of curiosity mm. about this other organism, human being in front of you or with you. It also requires a certain humility about what you can and cannot reasonably accomplish in the time with my skill set and to make that pretty explicit. Mm -hmm. I think it is about really being in whatever way that whatever that means in this particular relationship to be in relationship with this person. That could be for five minutes. It could be for five years. And it really is about having people heal themselves. Like, I don't know if I've ever healed anybody. Uh, I think the, the dance that we've been in 
me and the people that I take care of and consult to treat like that relationship heals like is it both of us are requisite can't walk on one leg you can hop mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah but it really does require both and uh, it, it also requires i think uh, both people being uh, part of the work is to be in, is to, uh, to do the work to engage in the same project in my work a lot of people come with lots of assumptions about what it is that happens when you go to see a psychiatrist. A lot of assumptions. It is remarkable. Almost all of them are wrong. Yeah. Some of them have to do with whatever stigma people have about mental health and mental illness. Some of, the, some of those assumptions have to do with whatever people pick up in popular culture. Mm. People are scared to come and see a psychiatrist. So for some folks, it is the pain that they're experiencing has to be pretty severe because the, as I tell people, the idea of seeing me is far scarier than the reality. When they meet me, it's like, they're like, well, where's the rest? I'm like, this is it. (laughs) You engage in a conversation out of which you may or may not see something new. I may or may not make some recommendations. You may or may not like them. And then we may or may not engage in them further. And that's kind of it. It's like, one of the things psychiatrists, I think, in particular have to bring is a certain, a particular humility within the field of medicine, because it's not viewed as one of the action hero mm. specialties. Yeah. Nothing wrong with the action hero specialties. We're not one of those. Which we're is not, not one of those. Yeah. We're not the ones that gets paratrooped in to deal with like a bleeding leg artery or something like that. Or yeah. if someone is having a hard time breathing, I'm not the first doctor you want around mm-hmm. to manage someone's airways, you know, like where they, how you breathe. And it's funny, there was a, I, and I had that experience. Like I was this do- experience that doctors either really look forward to or really dread when you're on a plane. Remember planes? Oh yeah. The uh, thing we used to be able to do. Things yeah. you used to uh-huh. be able to do. They were the yeah. plane and they'd fly up in the air like a giant metal eagle. Mm-hmm. My, this is good. Cause my very first patient contact yes as a newly minted naturopath where the ink yes. was still wet on my license was actually yes. on an on airplane plane. nice mm-hmm. yeah that 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 moment in an airplane by the way i i, I don't understand I, I used to complain about flying i can't imagine i will complain again because it's kind of like oh you mean that thing where i used to fly like a like a like a superhero through the air the miracle where i could like get in a plane and five hours later be in a completely different part of the country that's right even world that's right that's right so the 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 pa comes on the the flight attendant comes on and they say is there a doctor on the plane and i'm like looking around hoping somebody else rings the call button (laughs) And I happened to be wearing my Johns Hopkins medicine t-shirt. That's where I went to medical school. Oh gosh. And the stewardess of the flight attendant comes up to me and she goes, she looks at my t-shirt. She looks at me, she looks at my t-shirt. She goes, are you a doctor? <laughs> and she <I> said, <laughs> kind of bashedly say yes. Because why didn't you ring the button? I said, I, I mumbled something. I said, how yeah. can I help? And they're like, we have someone who, who doesn't, having some trouble, has a lot of stomach pain. And we're in the, over the Atlantic on our way to Italy. And the only question that needs to be answered really is, do we land in Ireland or not? Like, it's not a small deal. Right. As if this person's so sick, right? Yeah. 
And uh, this was really at the end of my training. It's like you, you mentioned, you're newly minted. This was at, when I was a senior, I was a chief resident. I was also at the peak of my confidence. And uh, no, it wasn't. it's all downhill from there. It's all downhill. No, it wasn't. But, yeah. but they said, oh, well, he's having a lot of abdominal problems and he's kind of in distress and we don't know what to do. And they give me the bag of his medications. He's an older gentleman. Uh-huh. And he's got some older gentleman pills for blood pressure and cholesterol and depression. And, and I'm like, okay. And he, they say, and by the way, he doesn't speak English. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what does he speak? And they said, hoping I speak Spanish, I speak Hebrew. And they're like, Arabic. I was like, oh, well. Not that one. <laughs> <laughs> Not that one. And I said, all right. And of course, as I'm about to go see him, another doctor pops in much older mm-hmm. than me, looking very, very anxious, says, do you need any help? And I said, what type of doctor are you? And he said, I'm a psychiatrist. I said, no, I've got this. And, <laughs> and I go back and see him. And at that moment, this is apropos to your question. This really does have a point. I was walking to the back of the plane and what was walking to the back of the plane was doctor. Yeah. Cause that's what this person saw coming towards him. He didn't care about my particular anxieties or level of confidence or anything. He's just, mm-hmm. Oh, doctor is coming. And I got that moment. It was one of the first times when I really got doctor as a distinct entity from me personally. Mm-hmm. which is an essential part of this particular ritual that I am inv- mm-hmm. involved in on a daily basis. And I went and I saw him and from the distance, he didn't look sick and his stomach wasn't firm and his pulse was fine and he wasn't sweating. I'm like, all right, he does, he'll be fine. And I had a thought, right? And the thought was, I said to him, because I knew what would, the answer would be because he doesn't speak in English, but I looked at him and his wife and she's wearing a hijab in this older Arab couple from Egypt. And, and he, I said, when was the last time you moved your bowels? Just like that. And he goes, he had no, he didn't know what I said. Right. Yeah. So then I tapped my watch, shrugged my shoulders and kind of said, caca. And, then, <laughs> and they really got it. And each of them held up three fingers simultaneously. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, he's constipated. Get him some cola. And he went right to bed and he felt so much better because the doctor had been mm-hmm. to see him. Yeah. There was some moment of distress. So this is actually perfect. I know you were kind of like, I didn't answer your question, except you did. And one of the things you mentioned is the importance of relationship. Yeah. And honoring who we occur as, show up as, how people see us because doctor is present. Yeah. And inside of medical ethics, I can imagine there's all sorts of conversations of like abusing that or being responsible for that. Yeah. And there's also this like power of healing. I can see where like when as a naturopathic physician, I'm often the first or only doctor who's told this person that what they're dealing with could get better Mm -hmm. because in conventional medicine and inside of their ethics, speaking from what they see, the predictable prognosis is given the tools and training that they have is distinct from the training and tools that I have and what I've seen clinically and what I know is possible. And so often that's the case. And there's all I've done is say two or three sentences and this person's whole outlook 
and then thus corresponding actions start to shift. Yeah. Yep. And one of the things that I recall from a previous conversation you and I had that I really wanted to talk about is like yeah. also with the power of the distinction and the and the beingness of doctor. Yeah comes the power of one of the th- critical things that we do on a regular basis, which is diagnose people or offer yeah. a diagnosis. And yeah. that's another world of a lot of expectations and a lot yep. of assumptions, yep. most of which are wrong. Yep. <laughs> what does a diagnosis mean? Like what is a diagnosis actually? Yep. Yes, it's a great question. So here's what a diagnosis is not. It's not a thing that's in reality. I ask people, if you ask a people, because I take care of people with cancer and I take care of people with psychiatric illness, right? And I ask them, where, when did you have cancer? If you can ask just that question, it really begins to get at what I'm going to be pointing at. When did you have cancer? And it's when I first felt the lump, I knew something was wrong, right? Or when I started having this pain, I knew some, that's when the cancer started. But that's not reality. That's an after the fact conclusion. Because at some point down the line, they were given this diagnosis of cancer and then they go back, aha, the symptoms started here. In that moment, what they had was pain Mm -hmm. or they had discomfort or they had a lump or they had something, right? Some symptoms, some, some bleeding from somewhere. They don't, and I ask them, "When when did you have, when did you get cancer? And they kind of look at me funny. Now I don't usually do this with do this with patients. This is more illustrative for other oncologists because this is just kind of stupid to do with a patient. Just to be clear, yeah. but um, unless the person's really interested in like the philosophy of diagnosis, but like the per, you don't the oncologist's like oh when they had the lump that's when they got cancer. I'm like no, or they'll say when the first mutation happened in the particular gene that led to the cell overgrowth that that's eventually that's the naturopathic re- answer is like the uh, whole process that leads whole, up to it yeah right absolutely the, the oncologists say the same thing that's when it's really started we don't know exactly it was somewhere back then i'm like no that's not when it started that's when something happened but cancer happens the moment the pathologist says cancer it's like when is there a goal in the so- in soccer american everyone else in the world calls football like People are like, oh, when the ball goes in the net. I'm like, no, I can go onto the field and kick a ball into the net and there ain't no goal. Or it could be like before or after the start of the game, or it could be after somebody gets fouled uh-huh. or like some, it was out of bounds. There's no goal. The ball went in the net all those times. It's only when the referee says goal. That's when you have, that's when you have goal. Like the, you have cancer when expert who is given a particular authority by common understanding, in this case, a pathologist, says cancer. And frankly, patients don't have cancer until their oncologist says, you have cancer. You walk into that meeting, maybe, I don't know, hopefully not, maybe it's benign, I'm not sure what it is, but you walk out, cancer, totally different world. Yeah. Nothing's actually physically changed in anything, but inside of a span of a few minutes of speaking, your whole world, your whole future, everything's altered. Mm-hmm. And that gets at to the nature of diagnosis. Diagnosis is a linguistic entity. It only exists in speaking and language. And it serves a particular function. It's especially, by the way, around psychiatric diagnoses, people get so worked up 
but I'll say a little bit more about that in a minute, just to finish what I'm thinking, like a diagnosis has three functions, fundamentally. One is, so people can be talking about the same collection of things they observe and measure and things like that, right? We call it signs and symptoms, right? Things patients tell us they're experiencing and things that we can observe or measure. So, we, so what I call pneumonia in Tokyo and in Bangladesh and in London is all pneumonia. So we can be talking, and I, when I say to you, as a, as a human who's traveling in Paris, you have pneumonia, and then you go home and you tell your doctor in Utah, I had pneumonia, everybody's talking about the same thing. That's the first step. The other thing is it therefore gives you a sense of what's likely to happen. That's the prognosis part. Like what's likely to happen? Mm -hmm. And the third is, so you could do something to intervene or comfort. Mm -hmm. But it's not a real thing. It's not a real thing until we start to relate to it as a real thing. Yeah. And if you want an example of this, and this kind of gets me in trouble, but I don't care. I'm not really in trouble. I'm kidding. The DSM, which is the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental, illness, mental Diseases, right? It's just the, the collection of diagnoses of psychiatric diagnoses, which is an interesting document to begin with, because it wasn't originally designed for, for diagnosis, by the way. It was originally designed for research purposes. Hmm. It, became, it became that which we use for diagnosis because of lots of historical reasons, but nobody ever designed it as that. It keeps getting bigger. Mm-hmm. Are there more and more psychiatric illnesses? Like the human experience is not any different than it was 50 years ago, right? So it's, it, you could say it, gets, it keeps getting more precise or more fine or refined, which is fine as long as what it is. It's, but if with mental illness in particular, we talk about people as their illness in a way that is almost nowhere else in the world of healthcare or healing. Mm-hmm. You know, nobody says, I am my heart disease, or I am kidney failure. People say, I am depressed. My cousin's bipolar. She's really anxious. Aren't you really, aren't you really anxious? You're really an anxious person, which is, which is really very, 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 very complicated. But fundamentally, what it does is box people in. Because mm-hmm. if you are a thing, like, I am six foot tall and I am depressed. There's nothing I can do about being six feet tall and there's nothing I can do about being depressed. That's, that's what I am. That's what I am. And I just got to live with it versus it's something that I have. But then there's a space between the I and what I has. And then I may be able to do something with that which it has versus what do you do with that which you are? Nothing. You survive it. You get through it. Mm-hmm. And it's a subtle little nuanced shift, but like, like I said, it's all diagnostic language is language. Yeah. So I have, it's really important that when I say be humble, I'm like, yeah, like 500 years ago, they were talking about miasmas. Yep. They were talking about humors. Not that long ago. Mm-hmm. Like it's not that long ago. If, if you're, you, you, the humor is out of balance with your choleric humor. When you say you're sanguine, someone is sanguine, that's because that's from the humorous theory of healing. And it yeah. worked really well. This thing worked. It was around for literally like 1,500 years, probably longer. And people were like, oh, they were so backwards. It, 
it flipping worked for 1500 years. Yeah. What have we got that's been around for 1500 years? And in naturopathic medicine, we still use aspects of it. We mm. we've continued to allow for its evolution, but I mean, mm. I actually study the four temperaments of sanguine, caloric, melancholic, and phlegmatic and there how they cross over between propensity towards different types of disease expression Yes. Disease, as in the body is not fully optimal in its most healthy state. Yeah. And do you have a tendency towards cold and damp, phlegmatic, hot and dry, caloric, and then can even get into lifestyle aspects of how to balance those things is like one of the cornerstones of some of the naturopathic medicine that I practice. Yeah. Still works as a lens to like, and for me as a practitioner, mm. diagnosis gives me access to yeah. seeing a certain set of circumstances a particular totally. way. Totally. And I've seen it on both sides of the coin where I've had, I reference them as clients, but like I've yeah. had people in my practice, yeah. I've had clients that they've had a diagnosis. Like I have had a recent client where they predominantly had viewed what their body was dealing with through the lens of mental illness. And the diagnosis had been anxiety and depression to clinical depression to bipolar type two. And there'd been a lot of focus on all of that. And it wasn't until he saw his first integrative practitioner a few years ago that anybody mm. even said thyroid disorder. Mm. And then I've since looked at fibromyalgia or chronic fatigue as an overlap. And there's a lot of overlap in the symptoms mm. of clinical depression and chronic fatigue syndrome. Mm. And their causal roots can be very distinct. And so we don't really, we can't even necessarily for sure say he is, has this one thing or the other, but there's power in us even being able to start to talk about it. Like there's some fluidity here. We can look at the physical things. We can look at the mental, emotional things yeah. that's opened it up for him because for him, when it was bipolar type two, it was, I am that. I will always yeah. be that. I'm ashamed yeah. of that. There's something yep. wrong with me. There was like yep. all of that conversation inside of it. Yep. Equally, yep. I have another client that when she was officially diagnosed with an autoimmune disease, it was so liberating because there was something she could communicate to her community that she wasn't yeah. just grumpy and had a little soreness in her body and had this like it, it communicates something when you can say right. I'm dealing with this emotional or um, physical yeah. disease the world around her started to interact with her. Like, what do you need? How can I support you? What can we do about this? And it opened something up that hadn't been there before the diagnosis had happened. Mm. 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 It gave her new language. Mm -hmm. There's a, it, it actually saves lives, right? It really does in a very, very real way. Once you can see the world newly, then there's something you can do about it. Like you were saying. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's interesting. And it also gives me a place to stand to have profound empathy for people, right? The, the notion of people being bad people, that's just how they are versus yeah. people dealing with serious medical condition that is treatable and intervenable. Yeah. You really can see that in certainly in psychiatry, no better example than around substance use disorders mm -hmm. over the last two, three, four decades. You don't have to go and it's still around, right? Like, but like the moralization of addiction, addiction as a moral disease. Yeah. If you only you were stronger, mm -hmm. you'd be able to get past it. 
versus no, this is a medical condition that can be addressed and treated. Yeah. And there's no stigma with that. And even like, what we're discovering in the genetics of yeah. someone who has a propensity to just be more sensitized to something yeah. that actually predominantly is a toxin that yeah. could actually be a forward moving part of evolution to be more sensitive to toxins such that you're deterred from it. Like, I mean, there's, we decide what it means, but it's like ADD and ADHD is another one that I often, mm. this is mostly anecdotal and maybe there are people that can back this up with the research, but my experience is there's certainly nothing wrong with someone who falls in the category of ADD they see the world in an amazing way that I don't see the world. They interact with their day in a way that I don't interact my sister and I, and there are, there is just this creative Mm. zest for life juice about her. Mm. And while I can follow my checkboxes and and my calendar in a particular way, and I can tick all of these things, my sister's ability to walk into a blank room and masterfully turn it into this like haven of magic and, and whimsy And I'm certain that that's in part because of her brain literally just operates and fires differently than mine. Yeah. I mean, this is where we're going to disagree in that I don't want to, on the one hand, there actually is nothing wrong with anybody who has any sort of illness, Mm -hmm. but I don't want to create some hierarchy of like, because the people have been diminished. Now we need to elevate. It's like, I think it's kind of like people do have different approaches and and I don't want to, yeah, the challenge for getting help with something is walking around like there's something wrong with me and there shouldn't be mm-hmm. versus I've got some serious obstacles and there are multiple approaches out there that I should avail myself of. When people come to me and they say, doctor, I really don't believe in medications. Mm-hmm. And I, the thought I have is, that's like a carpenter saying, I don't believe in screwdrivers. Yes. Like, <laughs> like you want to build a darn house? You use the tools available. Yes. But I say to them, well, luckily it's not a faith-based endeavor. Your no. belief is not required. No. Your patient's required, but not your belief. Mm-hmm. But it's sort of funny. It's like we talk about how this could be of use to you rather than coming in with some predetermined notions of what I'm willing or unwilling to do based on some really unthought out bias yeah or when when people say something like well i only want to go they're coming to me but then they say i only want natural means i'm like well syphilis is natural like be careful what you think of natural is complicated cyanide is natural cyanide is natural leprosy very natural it's been around Uh it's been around you know so it's like the other side of this, by the way, when I was saying it was saved lives, I was thinking of there's this, I like to go back into the world of history because we always think every, everybody in history thinks they're the smartest and the most advanced. And if you literally go back through history, certainly for thousands of people are like, oh, we are like the pinnacle of human civilization. And then you go to look at like you know, the pyramids, like they were, they absolutely yeah. were the pinnacle yeah. of civilization. Absolutely. And to keep ourselves in check because we also right now think we're the pinnacle of civilization. We always do. Oh, uh-huh. No, no. Now we don't think that. See, the, the funny part is we know that. We know it. We are that. Correct. Yeah. And then, but there used to be this thing called hysteria, right? There's this, there's this diagnosis. Hysteria. There was women, mm-hmm. was particularly women. women. It was called yeah. hysterical. Mm-hmm. And in the last 150, 200 years, 
it's was such a pejorative, it became such a pejorative, right, way to, to demean and uh, diminish and, and dominate and sh- sideline women. Oh, you're, you're, you're hysterical, right? Mm-hmm. The, what people really don't know is there's a whole chapter in the history of that where that diagnosis saved thousands of lives. Because hmm. it, 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 it originally referred to kind of a vague syndrome that Hippocrates described. Hysterical comes from the Greek word hysteros, which means uterus or mm-hmm. womb. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was like there was whatever was going on with you, it was because your, your womb was wandering inside of your body. Hmm. Right? And people are like, oh, that's so ridiculous. But you have to understand, until, until we discovered anesthesia, we basically had no idea what was going on inside your body, yeah. except after you died, we could like cut you open and look around. Yeah. After the fact, <laughs> after the fact, but like but only when the anesthesia could uh, surgeons actually cut you open, look around, sew you back up like a, so wandering uterus. And that was like, it was like you were his, hysterical. And in the middle ages, women were, were, had all of these unusual symptoms, expressions, right? They were then accused of being witches and they were killed by the thousands in Europe. And there was this doctor named Sydenham and he was really committed to seeing just what's going on, like looking at the world and seeing what's there. He's an empiricist. He's like, Mm -hmm. I don't want to know what you're telling me to see. I want to see what's there. And he would look at these women and he goes, there's no witch here. There's something else. I know what this is. This is this thing that the Greeks called hysteria. Hmm. And he went around and testified in trial after trial after trial that no, no, this is not a witch. This is a medical condition. Hmm. And these women's lives were saved because they were no longer witches. They were hysterical. They were dark, right? So isn't that interesting? Remarkable. Isn't yeah. that interesting? So, and then over time, aha, women are hysterical is, was used again as a tool by a, a patriarchal society to say women are hysterical as a pejorative, right? So yeah. it's, but for a time, no, no, this isn't magic. This is medicine, mm-hmm. which is a huge state change. Yeah. This isn't magic. This is medicine. This is biology. This is something you can observe, right? Who knows? Now we might call some of them, uh, give them a diagnosis of schizophrenia or bipolar illness, but without any treatment, who knows? Who knows? We don't know what mm-hmm. was being observed. But back then it was like, this guy very, very, very deliberately, staunchly, he was kind of a good English doctor and went around just like, nope, not magic medicine. And that saved lives. Yeah. The diagnosis saved their life. They were going to be killed and now they're not, which is remarkable, mm-hmm. right? It's like, Absolutely. And then, and then the thing gets turned into one more, right? So it's this, it's all, which keeps pointing to, it's all is inside of this common endeavor called language. Like can't make up a word on my own. If I decide a bird means what you call a dog, nobody's going to know that. So anyway, just an interesting moment when a new diagnosis saves lives because it alters how people view people. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, I'll give you a really controversial one. Okay. This is like the ultimate other in our society. Mm-hmm. Beyond even like people who you, you can say the mentally ill are the ultimate other. Because it's okay to say to someone, oh, they're just crazy. 
anytime you can dismiss someone as their attribute, then they're, you're making them an other. Here's, here's a, who knows if you'll keep this in the podcast or not, all right? But like the ultimate, truly ultimate other in our society are people who are pedophiles. Right? Yep. Like people, and this is like, this is like, mm, very yeah. challenging. Yeah. Very tough stuff. And we say that they're evil yeah. and they're bad. Yeah. They're bad people. Right? They're bad people. And it is the case that some people, the way they develop is the way most people develop is when you're like 12, you're attracted to a 12 year old of either the same or the opposite sex. And as you get older, the people you're attracted to become remain age appropriate. Like when you're 20, you're not attracted to the 12 year old. You might like that, right? Yep. But there are certain people as they age, as they grow up, they, that doesn't alter. And they're forever attracted to children of a certain age. And that's what's so. That's what's so. Now, most people who have that predilection don't actually act on it. Mm-hmm. But they suffer tremendously. And some do. And they suffer tremendously. And they make other people suffer tremendously. Right? But that is one where it's still okay to completely criminalize it. Yeah. And not say, huh, I wonder how healing would look like here. I don't know what the answer is. I actually have no position on this. I have yeah. no, but I'm interested in looking at what's so mm-hmm. rather than having to see what we're told to see, that these people are evil. Yeah. It's kind of like, something gets co-opted or underdeveloped and they are trapped. And to further the controversy of it, we can look back over time where that was the African-American slave, where that was Mm -hmm. Jews, where that was, and those conversations now for the majority of probably my listeners, this space would say that's absurd Mm-hmm. That was the most horrible, like we have the other side of it in it, that it, but just like that same, we know we're the pinnacle of human development and achievement yeah. at this moment in history. And yet when, that was the case at each moment in history. And yeah. like, there may be more for us to learn here. And yeah. how Can't do we, I yeah. sorry to interrupt. Can't believe I went here. I'm like, oh my goodness. <laughs> Fabulous. Yeah. yeah, no, and I appreciate the courage of that because that's that that is this project for me is about us. One of my hypotheses observations is that healing, I put it very simply, is it's it's about things becoming whole. If it wasn't returning to wholeness and yeah. optimal functioning, being in their original, pure, fully functioning state which we can start to define that in a lot, a lot, a lot of different ways, but that that's what healing is about. And at the most basic physiology level, like when skin is cut and it heals, it returns itself back into an integrous state of being skin and usually is stronger for it. Yeah. And so what I've found, one of the things that's been congruent through my practice in my own life is that If I haven't challenged myself, found myself in an uncomfortable situation, dropped myself into the unknown, 
been dealing and up against going, wait a minute, I've seen life and myself this way all this time. And now I'm starting to wonder, maybe I had it wrong, or maybe there's another way to look at it. If none of those things are happening, probably not healing. Something else might be going on. But like, for me, what I've distinguished around healing, and I've even had some guests say, I don't even like the word heal. I look at it this way. And it's like, I'm not even attached to that word. It just gives us a particular access point. Yeah. I appreciate what you're saying, right? Because in the context of the conversation we were just having, in the context of addiction, in the context of sexual preferences that are not appropriate, but you have them, right? Mm -hmm. There is, I think sometimes people think healing, it means restore yourself to some space of effortlessness. Mm. (laughs) I want to be healed. And if you really look, right? And I want to be healed is very much like a passive phenomenon, the way we talk about it. Yeah like people go to shrines or holy sites and I just like got to show up and I will be healed. And then they show up and they're either have some experience or they don't, but that's not what I, and what I'm hearing you, that's not what healing is. It's kind of like healing demands work. It demands sacrifice like the wholeness that you're referring to of the body is very different than the wholeness of a human being. There are people who, for whom drinking alcohol is like the hunger that you and I have when we don't eat for a day, people who, for whom drinking is like that. Like I hunger for it like a starving person. And they have to figure out that I live with hunger Mm -hmm. and that's when I'm whole not when I indulge in hunger, because that's when I stop being whole for myself as a human being. And there are people who just, that's just how it is. I mean, if you go to AA meetings, that's mostly what's underneath the conversations, right? Like I'm whole because I surrender to that which runs me rather than going after what it is I want in the moment. Or that it's going to go anywhere, that it's going to disappear and it won't be there and that hunger will be satisfied in some other way. It's like, no, it might just stay there. Yeah. And it's funny. It's like, I, it's, it gets really complicated because healing takes that kind of work. It takes the work to confront what's having you not be whole, what's continuing to upend the apple cart of that, which you say you want and then to own it, and then to wrestle with it, and then to fail a lot, and then to, like, because people go, oh, it's like there's this great Simpsons episode where parents are talking about their kid to a psychiatrist who's very wild, and they're like, we've tried nothing, and we're all out of ideas. (laughs) (laughs) There are people who come to me, and they will talk about having anxiety or having very sad feelings or low mood or having difficulty engaging with people in their life and certainly medications on the table. But unless we're talking about how you're engaging with life in some way, then the medicines, they will diminish the intensity of the experience so that Mm -hmm. it's tolerable, but they won't fundamentally lead to an altered anything. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm, I'm like, just to be really clear, I'm not talking about people with severe manifestations of, of mental distress. Like if someone has full-blown 
psychosis or a depression that's so severe that they can't get out of bed or they're thinking of killing themselves. That's a different world. Right. That's not what I'm referring to, but I am referring to people who are like, I do nothing all day and I feel bad and I don't know what to do. Mm -hmm. And I will ask them who's in your life that you talk with. What do you talk about with them? Like, how do you spend your days? Do you get out and see green or do you exercise? Like, how much are you drinking? Do you smoke? Whatever you're smoking, right? Yeah. Tobacco products or marijuana stuff. Like, like what's going on? Like, yeah. tell me about your life. And a life begins to emerge. Tell me about like what life was like when you were growing up a little bit. So it's like you get the wholeness of the human. And... I often give patients homework, go and do some stuff and we'll talk, we'll come back and we'll figure it out and we'll talk. And some, and a lot of the times they're like, I think I'm good. I'm like, I'm going to do some stuff. And if I need you, I'll call you back. And yeah, part of the healing is the role that the relationship that you were referring to, like as a role as a healer. I think one of the things that we want to do is elevate our healers because we get so scared when we, stop feeling well. It's very scary. Because mostly you and I wake up and we don't think, can I count on my body today? Yeah. Like we assume it will work the way it's always worked. The usual sore spots will be sore and everything else will be fine and, and like that, right? Like that part of my back that always aches in the Does morning. that quirky thing, but yes. That quirky? But even right, that's pretty consistent. We have all that's our structures consistent. and systems to take care of it. Yeah. That's right. So, but when someone has some sort of disease or some new physical experience, like a symptom that is new, that is terrifying. Because part of the terror is I can't count on my body. And part of the terror is what does this mean for my future? And so we want someone to take care of us. And I, now there's nothing wrong with that. I don't begrudge it, but it is something for us as healers to be responsible for, as you were saying, both the role, the pedestal. Yeah. The other part of it is for me, and I fall into this trap way more often than I don't, by the way, is like you look at all these medical shows that have been on TV in the past or currently, the patients are never the heroes and they're the ones going through what they're going through. Right. Yeah. But it's always, it's striking that the patients are never the center of the story. The patients come and go, right? Listen, you have a certain drama. It takes place in a location with a stable cast of characters. So that's going to be like a hospital. There are doctors and nurses, et cetera, and all the other stuff. Or it's like a clinic or it's like a firehouse. But the patients are never the heroes. And they're the ones actually going through something. They're on the journey. Yeah. You're there more like, you're not Frodo, you're Gandalf. Frodo's got to go. He's and the walk. one. Yeah. And transform and he, himself and deal with all of his demons yeah, and face it and yeah. blisters on his feet. And yeah. Seriously. And carry that burden yeah. that gets heavier and heavier and heavier. It's like, yeah. And you're there to kind of guide, support, advise, provide, like you were, you were saying earlier also like provide hope yeah. that things can get better when, even when it looks bleak but they're the ones going through it. So it's, it's like, that's kind of the humility I was talking about. Mm -hmm. Not like to be flip about it or at all, but it's like, you kind of have to hold both. And by the way, 
in my experience, anecdotally, patients often don't like that. No. Because yeah. they want you to fix them. Yeah. There's, there's a lot of self-responsibility in being the center of your own story That's <laughs> and right. being the hero. Yeah. That's right. Oh yeah. That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. Mostly I want to sit by the sidelines and watch uh-huh. like in the civil war, there are all these accounts that there would be battles happening or in the revolutionary war, people would come and watch. Like spectators. Yeah. Like spectators. Yeah. Like it's kind yeah. of macabre. It actually changed later in the Civil War as the armies got bigger and things became incredibly brutal once people figured out, holy cow, this is not your grandfather's revolutionary war. This is a meat grinder. Yeah. But it's, but it's a, yeah, like we would rather be the spectator, even as we imagine ourselves the hero. Mm-hmm. And that's a human thing. All of us are like oh, yeah. that. Right? Yeah. Like, listen, nobody's going to tuck me in at night, but I wish there was. Somebody <laughs> tuck me in. <laughs> My mom was actually just here for two was weeks she? and yeah. it was like the best ever. And I've, I've actually shared about this in other episodes yeah. this summer. I got diagnosed with chronic fatigue syndrome, diagnosis, creating distinction in language. And I'm still yeah. working out what does that actually mean in reality? Sure. Like what's the actual thing that's happening? And it was really great to have my mom here and cook for me and Aww. tuck me in and do those yes. things. And then she went home and yes. yep, here I am. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, well, that's that's probably part of why I felt so good because if she was there all the time. Oh no, I'd have a different conversation about yeah, it. A different conversation, even cause... in the two weeks, and we laugh about it. We have yeah, a great yeah, relationship, yeah. but yeah, yeah no, no yeah. listen, everything, everything that's extraordinary at first, what we do is we make it wallpaper. Mm-hmm. That's just what human beings do. Yeah, like I've got a I've got a nephew who's about to turn one, and God love that little dude. Everything is infinitely exciting for him. Like everything and every moment is infinitely exciting for him. Very few of us live that way. Nope. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. This is the humility that we're talking about. When you are confronted with the loss of confidence in your physical well-being, everything starts to get questioned. Because, mm-hmm. and you get taken right back to when you're, I was thinking about my nephew, like he's, He's at the phase of development called mastering my body. How do I walk? How do I control my bowel, my urine? Like the basic stuff. Mm-hmm. And when we're really sick or when we're at the end of life, that stuff tends to fail. Yeah. And then it's like, who am I? Who will help me? How can I trust myself? Some people who've done the work really have done the work. And I don't include myself in this category, to be clear, to really discover for themselves that there is something where they are that is independent of their body. Mm-hmm. Like my body can change, but I'm not gonna be impacted. I was dealing with something with my foot today and I'm like imagining, I, this is one of these, like, like doctors know too much, right? Like it's going to be an infection. I'm going to lose my foot. Like, Oh yeah. Oh yeah. It's so easy. <laughs> it's so easy. A few years. I, I, I'll share this with you. Right. A few years, like maybe seven, eight years ago, I had like this arrhythmia. Like I literally, like I'm like sitting in my home. I used to live in Boston, sitting in my home in Cambridge actually. And I feel kind of funny. I kind of feel kind of funny. And for some reason I take my pulse in my neck and it's irregular. And I was like, Holy cow. That's new. It's like a Saturday night, right? I called, 
I called my doctor answering service. The on-call doctor calls me up and says, well, what does it sound like? I'm like, it's irregular. And, and then they said, please tap it out on the phone. I'm like, you're kidding. I'm like, okay, yes. so I do that. Yeah. And the doctor says, it doesn't sound too bad. You can just wait till Monday and come into the office. And I hang up the phone and I think to myself, I am not going to sleep because I will die in my sleep tonight. I'm just not going to sleep. I'm not going to sleep for like four. No. And I'm sitting and I'm angsty. I'm like, what should I do? Should I go to the ER? Should I not go to the ER? Should I stay at home? I call my dad, who's also a physician. And he's like, all he says to me, he's a very wise man, my father. He says, Guy, you're an excellent psychiatrist. Now go to the hospital. <laughs> it, was been, it was benign and I got treated and it was fine. It was, it was a whole adventure. Actually. Yeah. It was a whole adventure when yeah. a relatively young, healthy adult walks into an ER and says, I'm having an irregular heartbeat. You go to the front of the line. Yeah. But uh, I, knew all the, I knew most of the nurses. It was the hospital where I worked at the time. It was a whole adventure. But like... I don't know, in that moment, I couldn't trust my body. Yeah. And I wanted someone to tell me what this is. Now, the funny part is you and I have just been spending like, I don't know, an hour talking about the, like, the linguistic nature of diagnosis. I assume you don't use scatological language on your podcast. Oh no, have at it, um, say whatever like, you want. We're free but free like, speak here. Fuck no, we don't live that way. Because I want to know what yeah. this is. That's how we actually yeah. live in our day-to-day. -day. Tell me what I've got, right? That's what we say. Tell me what this yeah. is. How come? Because if I know what this is, I can do something with it. Unless it's one of these diagnoses when I, what this is is what I am. Mm -hmm. Like this whole bit about linguistic, but, 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 but good for you doctors. Tell me what this is. That's why I never yeah. talk this way to patients because no. what, what's walking into the consultation is a lot of worry, fear, hesitation like they're not interested in this conversation it's not appropriate what they want to know what this is and mostly what they want to know is can this get better can you make sense of this have you seen this before right like and that is the purveyance of hope mm -hmm. that is i think underneath all of this conversation around what it is to heal is to tell people that the what you're feeling and experiencing now isn't the way it's always going to be. Yeah. And even if what you're feeling and experiencing physically is not likely to change, who you will be about it yeah. can grow and develop such that you can manage it. There's, there's a quote by John F. Kennedy where he said, do not pray for a lighter load, pray for a stronger back. Mm. So it's like, but, all the, but underneath it all, they come, people come to us for hope. And they always have. Yeah. They always have. There's this, there is this wonderful character of the doctor. I don't know if you ever read the books or watched the TV show, Little House on the Prairie. Yes. The doctor in Little yeah. House on the Prairie. Yeah. You, if you ever watch the show and if you get a chance to watch it, right? Like it takes place like when in the 1840s, something like that, or 18, I can't remember yeah, if it's before or after remember. the Civil War, yeah. but something in the mid 19th century. And he mostly does nothing. <laughs> Like in the world of what we now expect doctors to right. do, yeah, we can talk about where that comes from. But doctors, we want to do stuff. And yeah. there's a whole history around exploring what happens inside the body and surgery. And then once, you, once penicillin comes out and you can start to cure infectious disease, you can do stuff. And with technology and the merging 
people think of medicine and science kind of being one, that's emerging that happened in late 19th century Germany, where you have these laboratory science meets medicine to enhance techniques, progress, etc. But that's pretty new. Yeah. Nowadays, before that, before like 100 years ago, maybe a little bit more, but not much, doctors could tell you what you've got and what's likely to happen and what are the small things you can do to have it maybe be a little bit better and they can cut stuff off, <laughs> right? Like mostly, yeah, mostly. There are exceptions, yeah. right? Like, but mostly, they could, that's what you did. And that was incredibly reassuring. Mm-hmm. Like, like me in the airplane, putting my hands on the belly of this man with whom I didn't share a spoken language, but we definitely communicated. Yeah. And that was, that was all he needed. So I think a lot of medical training now is fantastic. But one of the things that it's lacking is how do you be with? Mm-hmm. And how do you be with suffering and distress without needing to do anything? Yeah. And that's, that's a lot of what, there's actually, there is a, a part of medicine where that still has a significant life, Western medicine and traditional medicine, which is uh, psychiatry to some degree. It's actually in some ways shrinking and palliative medicine, actually, the field of palliative care. Have you heard of any of the programs now? Of course, I got to think of specifically narrative medicine. Absolutely. And so this was one my mother stumbled on the conference of narrative medicine, sent it to me. I read the page and went, oh my gosh, that's a lot. I mean, I'm not formally trained in it, so I can't say this really. But when I read it, I was like, that's a lot of what I do because for sure I have the component of being with a person in any state that they're in. It's, it's, it's been something I've had for a long time and also have done a lot of work to cultivate my capacities for that. And while as a naturopath, I ask my patients to do a lot of things, sure. <laughs> like whole lifestyle changes, very complicated sure. treatment plans, which we build slowly over time. And eventually they're like, I can't believe I used to complain when you had me on just five vitamins. I'm like, I know you wish for those days, don't you? But, but much like, like I actually was looking at moving to the Netherlands and in the Netherlands, there is no profession of naturopathic medicine. And most of the remedies and the, the tools I work with are not available. Mm. And I was actually looking at the reality is my practice really didn't have to change very much because the mm. things that one of my other favorite quotes is, is medicine is what we entertain the patient with while the body takes care of the rest. And <laughs> <laughs> there's this like our need to do something, but so much like I spend 50 minutes to an hour, twice a month with each of my clients, usually for the first year, it's a lot of conversation, a lot of communication. And in the Mm. first six months, predominantly it's them just off gassing, Mm. being able to be in communication. And there's a particular Mm. way that I listen in those conversations. And this is what I discovered was showing up in the, the discipline of narrative medicine, that there is mm. a way that doctors, even they did studies where even surgeons mm-hmm. who would listen to their patient's story in a particular mm-hmm. way and allow that story's validity and to actually empathetically get the patient's experience. They had statistical information that showed better surgical outcomes when that communication and that relationship was intact. Mm. And you would think surgery is just technical, like 
they're good at what they do and the doing of it, but they actually have evidence that shows mm. the relationship that gets generated with the surgeon through that kind of communication altered patient outcomes. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. I don't know very much about narrative medicine in the, other than that it exists and it's, it's, it's a wonderful, there are things that are academic and there are things that are practical. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting to see where they interface. One of the things that I do know that it does is exactly what you're saying. It actually trains people to listen in a particular way. Mm-hmm. There's also looking in a particular way. There are a couple of medical schools. I know Harvard does this. There are others that do it as well. Cornell might, at least they used to, before COVID, is they take medical students to look at art so they can actually see the art rather mm-hmm. than think they know what's already there. Uh-huh. The thing that I would love to happen is for that to keep going, you see. It's kind of like we send, we send the children to do that. No pun intended. These are fully formed adults. Right. But, but like, I, yes. But like, medical students, but like yep. the senior surgeons are not being told to go to the art museum and just look. Yeah. And see what's right. there. Just literally what is there. Yeah. Because part of the challenge, and it is a real challenge, part of the tension is, is people do come to us for what we know. Otherwise, they could just go on the internet or talk to their friends. So you're expected to know stuff. Uh-huh. And that is attention because we really are expected. There is a body of knowledge to master. And then there is this particular human being in front of you. Yeah. Like this particular set of experiences, emotions, concerns, histories, hopes, fantasies, dreams, etc. And there are certain people... in it's always a dance and you bring your knowledge to bear, but the dance is unique every time. Mm-hmm. You know, and sometimes I dance well, hopefully more often than I step on toes. <laughs> yeah. Know? It's like, and sometimes I make a really good guess. See, part of the challenge with working in psychiatry is a lot of what we deal with are disorders where insight is impaired. Mm-hmm. Like, if you have a broken arm, you're not going to start lifting weights. Because you say, oh, I have a broken arm. But when there is something happening in the brain, and yeah. the brain isn't aware that there's something in the brain, it's very difficult. Yeah. To, right? Very, very difficult for people to engage. Because if it's literally like I were to tell you that... I think you're not well and you need to take medicine right now. And you'd be like, no, you're nuts. And we're saying, no, you're nuts. Uh And it's kind of like, then you're just in an argument, right? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or it's like the old story of this kingdom that was cursed by a witch where the well was poisoned and everyone who drank from it went mad, except for the king because he had his own water supply. And the people were bereft because their king was insane. Right. So it's kind of like who's then you get into this whole notion. But Uh but part of the work is in maintaining relationship when there's nothing else going on. So that when something happens, you're there as a trusted human. I had I used to have a I'll change the details a little bit, but I had a patient who really just believed that people were after him. Mm -hmm. and I mean like 
the consulate of Ecuador and the um, consulate of Colombia were conspiring against him and putting listening devices in his house. And but if you were to meet him, he he would talk like this, yeah. just like this, just like this. And there are certainly there may be medications that help. He just he's like, no, no, they really are doing this. And he would bring me pictures and evidence. And there was no evidence, right? But like, but for for a time, I, I even there was even one time when I called the local police department. I'm like, is this really? Because he's so credible looking that yeah. I'm like, am I going, am I, the, maybe there's, right? No, there was no, but we made sure that he had housing and we made sure that he had food stamps mm -hmm. and we made sure that he kept his medical appointments for like the usual checkups and screens because he was kind of older. And that was me being a doctor. It wasn't about quote unquote, fixing his view of the world. Yeah. Cause there was nothing wrong with it. As weird as that sounds, it's just doesn't quite fit into anybody else's and leaves him lonely, detached, and even like this, like people being afraid of him. So all we worked on, well, he didn't work on anything. He just came and talked. All yeah. I worked on was having him come back. And we would talk about his good old days when he was functional and he went to a very prestigious college and, and it declined afterwards and that was okay. Once every month or two, he'd come in and as long as I saw him, cause he didn't have a phone, you see, cause phones were tapped. Clear. He didn't have mm -hmm. an email cause emails are hacked. And he only had a PO box that he would check once in a blue moon. Mm -hmm. And he wouldn't give me his home address until much later. Mm -hmm. So as long as he came in like, oh, he's still alive. Uh -huh. And then if he left, I'd never knew if I would see him again. Right, but like the relationship was the thing. Yeah. And it was pleasant to see him. Just pleasant. And this is rather than the myth of perfectibility. Mm -hmm. The myth of like having to have like the body of someone who's on men's health or Maxim or something like that. And mm -hmm. that's what like, and if I don't look like that, there must be something wrong. Like if I, the way I have to think just like everybody thinks, like the myth of having the perfect mind, like, yeah. versus, no, no, no. How do I engage in the world where I get to grow and be whole as me, not a whole as some other person's vision of me? So it gets, again, it's tension. Cause like, on the other hand, you don't, you don't want people like walking around naked in the middle of winter. Right. Yeah. But there is something around just like, especially in psychiatry, one of the things that we do well when we do it well is bringing empathy to that part of humanity that people don't want to look and see. One of my mentors used to say, our job is to find everyone's story of epic heroism. Whatever it is, you got to find it. It's not like, is it, it's there somewhere. Yeah. You got to find for it. Not, not do they have it. It's your job it's, to find it. It's there. Yeah. Go find it. Go yeah. look for it. Yeah. Beautiful. I think that's a good place to put a pin in it for now. All right. I love Perfect. it. I so appreciate it. This has been a really extraordinary wandering about the hallways. Yeah. It's been really awesome. And Thank I appreciate you. you so much. And uh, We're right back yeah. at you. Thank you for the opportunity to speak and be heard. And yeah, I hope I fulfilled on your intentions. Fully. All right, great. All of it. It's fantastic. So great to be with you.
Yeah. Even had one of those moments where I was like, I didn't know that. Now I'm looking at it newly. It's fantastic. Okay. Great. <laughs> yep. Fulfilled that one too. Fulfilled Hit the high that bar. one too. Excellent. Excellent. <laughs> awesome. Well, awesome. I very much appreciate you and uh, maybe yeah. we'll get to do this again sometime. Hope so. Take care. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you to today's guest, Dr. Guy Maytal, for his humble wisdom and kind heart. If Heal's been making a difference for you, we would greatly appreciate it if you left us a review on your favorite platform so we can reach more people and help heal our world. For a full transcript and all the resources for today's show, visit sarahmarshallnd.com backslash podcast. Keep the conversation going. Have ideas or a healing story to share? Send us your thoughts, wants for future episodes, or questions by contacting us at sarahmarshallnd.com or on Instagram at sarahmarshallnd. Special thanks to our music composer, Roddy Nickpour, and as always, our editor, Kendra Vicken. We'll see you next time.